I've got a rhetorical question for us as we start. If you could have one job in medieval England, what would it be? Perhaps it would be a good solid trade, like a blacksmith or a carpenter. If you're brave or, more accurately, a bit stupid, maybe you'd want to be a knight on the front of battle. I was thinking about this. I think I would have liked to have been a herald. Heralds were the people who went before a royal delegation to a town or city to announce the impending arrival of the king or queen. And apart from needing a loud voice, which I think I can manage, (laughs) heralds were also decked out in fine clothes, typically bearing the coat of arms of their master. And I mean, for my day job, I basically talk about fine clothes that a bunch of people wear for their masters. (laughs) Um, If you're confused, come and see me afterwards. But... I was looking into this. Interestingly, there are multiple accounts of heralds who wore such impressive clothing uh, with gold details and lace that when they went to the towns and the villages and declared, make way for the king, people actually thought they were the king themselves. They were dressed so well. And the herald just had to say, no, I'm not the king. I'm just here to sound the trumpet and tell you that the king is coming after me. And the townspeople would wonder, What must the king look like if the herald is dressed as well as he is? In John chapter 1, we see a declaration that the king is coming. Make straight the way for the Lord. But of course, the herald in this account is not dressed in fine clothes. He's dressed in sackcloth. And we see in this passage, because of his own words, we are left in no doubt that he is in fact not the king. So let's see what this passage in John has to say to us. And in particular, I want us to take some very practical applications for our own evangelism. And we'll focus much of our time on that wonderful quote from Isaiah in verse 23. In fact, it'd probably be worth having a bookmark in Isaiah chapter 40. We'll be returning to that a few times this evening. But let's get our foot in and start with some context. What is happening here in John? Here we have an account of John the Baptist. And we've already been introduced to John in the prologue of John's Gospel, those first few verses. And here in this passage, we see that John the Baptist's ministry is already having a serious impact. This strange-looking man, dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and honey, as we read in the other Gospels, was causing a stir. People were leaving from Jerusalem and further afield to join John in the country, in the desert, just to hear what he had to say. And what's more, people were responding. People were being baptized upon hearing the message of John the Baptist. Few things validated the impact of John's ministry more than the response of the Jewish religious establishment. Priests, Levites, Pharisees, they were all sent from Jerusalem as a sort of crack team to figure out exactly who John was and, if necessary, to undermine him if he posed a serious threat. And we can see this is a very calculated operation, almost like a sort of pincer movement at one flank with the temple lily, the priests and the Levites we read of. And then on the other side, we have the scholarly, legal, scripturally, the Pharisees. In the minds of the Jewish leaders, John the Baptist would be exposed one way or another. But there's an amazing irony in this story. The representatives had been sent by the Jerusalem elite. We see this in verse 19, you see that phrase. 
the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites. But John the Baptist was sent by God. Look back at verse 6 of John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The elite were sending their representatives to test out whether God's representative was legitimate. Now there's a lot we can take from the way John handles his interrogation in this passage. Not only in what he says, but how he says it. So firstly, John is asked if he is the Messiah. It might seem like quite a bold question to ask, but in the context of the day, there was much anticipation over the coming of the Messiah. And of course, those who were here this morning, we looked at a bit of that with Matt, didn't we? But as we said this morning, there was confusion as to what sort of person the Messiah would be. Some were expecting a great military figure, someone to liberate the people from Roman occupation. Others a purely religious character or someone who would inspire a political revolution. John the Baptist, because of growing reputation and obvious gifting, was starting to look like a potential Messiah candidate. But in the midst of this confusion, John's response to the questioning of the Jewish leaders is crystal clear. I am not the Messiah. And notice that wording in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. Were John to have any sort of personal ambition, his answer might have been different. The religious leaders aren't mocking him with their question. It's a genuine question, and John could have said, yes, as it turns out, I am the Messiah. I mean, people clearly trusted him. He had a degree of influence. The temptation to further cement his status would have been there. And we need only look to the many false messiahs that have popped up in history and even in recent years to see what that might look like. But there is no doubt in John's mind that the real messiah is to come, and very soon. We see some follow-up questions too. Next, asking of John, is Elijah? Again, it might seem like an odd question on first reading, but if we remember, Elijah never actually died. Uh, and we even see in the book of Malachi, immediately before the New Testament, that the return of Elijah had been prophesied. That's Malachi chapter 4, if you want to go and read that afterwards. And indeed, from the other Gospels, we also get a picture of how John resembled many of the Old Testament prophets with the way he dressed and what he said. But again, John is straightforward with his answer. I am not. And it's a similar story with yet another suggestion from the priest. Are you the prophet? This particular suggestion is in light of Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses records a promise from God to send a prophet like Moses. And this is another somewhat educated guess considering the circumstances. But no, says John, he is not the Messiah. He is not Elijah. He is not the prophet. You can just sense John wanting to direct the attention he is getting elsewhere, even with the reputation he now has. He is taking no glory for himself. Finally, we see more of an open question from the priests. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And in John's answer, we have the anchor of our passage today. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So I want to hone in on this verse now and break it down in a few parts. Uh, so let's do that now, starting with the voice. Excuse me. John declares that he is the voice of one calling in the wilderness or in the desert. 
Everything that John did was designed to tell people about the person of Jesus. Not just to show people in action, but to tell people in words. Look back at verse 7 of John chapter 1. He, that is John, came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. What good is a witness? You cannot say what they have seen. You cannot share what they know. We can look to much of scripture and see, for example, how it is often through the words of the prophets that God was made known to the people. And these words weren't of the prophets' own imagining, but they were God's words which the prophets faithfully declared. Sometimes those words weren't what people wanted to hear. And other times was the last thing the prophets wanted to say themselves. There was often great risk in vocalizing the message of the Lord. Think of an account like the one in Jonah. When God spoke to Jonah, he told him to go to Nineveh and preach against it because of their wickedness. In other words, Jonah was commanded to be a voice for the Lord in Nineveh. God didn't tell Jonah to go to Nineveh, live a good life amongst the people, that through his good deeds people may come to know him. He was to be a voice, and that was a scary prospect. Scary enough that Jonah, of course, ran in the opposite direction. Why was it so important, so that Jonah spoke to the people in Nineveh? Why was it important that John the Baptist was a voice? Romans 10, verse 14, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Consequently, faith comes through hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Imagine this scenario. There's a man called Simon. Simon doesn't really know anything about the gospel or who Jesus is, other than what he's grown up understanding through the media and film and TV. He has a very basic, um, distorted view of Jesus, if you like. And there are three colleagues at Simon's work. One is a Jehovah's Witness, one is a Mormon, and one is a Bible-believing Christian. Simon knows that each of them go to some sort of church on a Sunday, and in group conversations, he's observed that none of them tend to join in uh, with rude jokes or swearing, and he's noticed that none of them get drunk on the work nights out. In this scenario, all three of Simon's colleagues will likely exhibit what we might think of as good behavior. But actions, no matter how sincere, ought to be accompanied with words so that people who have not yet heard might hear the good news about Jesus. Again, quoting Romans, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now, practically, this doesn't mean that you have to organize a weekly Bible study at lunchtimes in the break room at work, but... It does mean that in conversations we should be ready and willing to share what Christ has done for us. Quoting 1 Peter 3, verse 15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason, give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, live for Christ not only in action but in word, in voice. We do this because our lives have been transformed by Christ. Thinking back to our scenario, Simon's colleague, who was a Christian, might risk alienating Simon and others were they to speak up about Jesus. I'm sure all of us, whether in our families or workplaces or with our neighbors, have worried on occasion about what people will think about us when we share the gospel in some way. 
But more than that, how many of us have stories, have personal testimonies of someone faithfully sharing the gospel with us? Perhaps when we were a child, it might have been one of our parents or someone in our church growing up. Uh, Perhaps it was a course mate at university or a colleague later in life who was bold enough to speak about Jesus to us. Just last week when Rob was with us, he shared his own testimony of how he had a friend in the army. I think his name was Liam, who was a believer. And Liam was key in Rob's conversion. Will we be a Liam for the people we know? As John was a voice for the gospel, let's seek to speak the gospel in our own lives with people we meet. And in fact, not just with people we meet, but with ourselves daily. Preach the gospel always to all people. Be a voice, as John was a voice. And before we move on to our next point, we should notice too that John does not say, I am the word, or I am the message. The humility of his actions and his words are consistent, and this puzzles the religious leaders. I mean, at this point, he hasn't even given his name, though they may have heard it. It seems John would be perfectly happy if his name would return to the dust and be forgotten if instead the name of Jesus would be lifted high for all to see. And he will go on to later summarize this uh, in, uh, in John when he says, he must become greater, I must become less. Progressing through uh, this verse, what does John mean when he says, he is the voice of one calling in the wilderness or in the desert? We can look at this in a couple of ways. Firstly, John was quite literally in the desert. In each of the other gospel accounts, John is described as being in the wilderness of Judea or in the country, away from the city. Uh, People came out to meet him there, and much of his ministry was conducted there. If we look at the context of Isaiah, though, and consider other parts of Scripture, we can understand that the world we live in is, spiritually speaking, as a desert. On the surface, the world might appear bountiful and rich, in reality, when you peel back the veneer, there is nothing lasting. Man's best efforts are like dust blown in the wind. Isaiah chapter 40, shortly after the verse that John quoted, starting partway through verse 6, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The reality of the world we live in is that it is dry and barren. It might not feel like it a lot of the time, especially living in the West, but thinking more deeply, not just about what we see on the surface, but where the world is at spiritually. The world is starving. The world is starving for peace for love, for identity. We are confused. We are hungry. And as strange as it may sound, can I suggest that it actually ought to feel like this? If you're in Christ, the world is not ultimately our home. Our hearts ought to grieve for the state of the world, for the injustices we see around us. We shouldn't be blind to these things. But the gospel message is a message of hope. If we are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven we can look to our Saviour who is preparing a place for us. Philippians 3, verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, 
even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now a wrong response to the understanding that we are living in a wilderness would be to retreat to the comfort of our homes or our churches and just keep ourselves to ourselves. And it would be an easy response, uh, and even an understandable one, but it would be a sinful response. It's a good thing that there are believers in secular workplaces, in secular schools, living amongst secular people. Every day, in the wilderness of this world that we are in, there needs to be people faithfully testifying to the life-giving stream that is Jesus. We are not the stream ourselves, We cannot provide the water ourselves, but we can point people to the source of the stream and invite them to drink. And there's a really practical application here. How often do we have conversations where even atheists talk about how messed up the world is? I mean, it's it's the only logical conclusion you can come to after watching the news for even five minutes. By any standard, the world needs some sort of help. Do we just nod along and agree that Yeah, everything sucks, everything is terrible. That is true to a certain extent, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus came down to this broken world to save lost, hungry, searching people. We were all those people before we knew Christ. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus delivered us from the wilderness so that we could look forward to an eternity where there will be no pain, no suffering, or through no effort of our own, through no goodness or righteousness of our own. And so the troubles of this world, real though they are, are temporary. Let's be bold and share even just something of this message with the people we know. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Looking now at this latter part of the quote from Isaiah, what does John mean when he says, make straight the way for the Lord? The later chapters of Isaiah have multiple layers to them. On one level, Isaiah is prophesying the exile and return of God's people to and from Babylon. And Isaiah's chapters 40 and onwards deal with this. But there's another meaning too. In Isaiah, we see a clear picture of the coming of Christ as our saviour to end humanity's exile from God. So as we read Isaiah, as we read of the plan for God to liberate his people from captivity in Babylon, we can rejoice because the story of Isaiah is our story. We've been in exile since the Garden of Eden, but God is coming to lead us home. He has already sent his son to take the punishment which was rightfully ours because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And so one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Quoting Isaiah chapter 40 again, uh, from verse 4, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. In quoting Isaiah, John is making his message very clear. He is saying, 
that his message is the same as the message of the Old Testament. As the Old Testament prophets were ultimately pointing to Christ, so too is John pointing to Christ. The Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus from a distance. And John is doing the same thing, only he will see him in the flesh. In Isaiah, we see so clearly the great power of God in action, in tandem with his loving mercy. So picking up again in Isaiah chapter 40 from verse 10. Isaiah prophesying the return from exile in Babylon of God's people says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young Again, the parallel here that we can see is that the same sovereign Lord will deliver us to be with him for eternity. It might have looked like the gods of Babylon were stronger in the Old Testament, but they would fall away. And today it might look like secularism or Islam or any other belief system is superior, but God is coming and he is coming with power and nothing, not even the forces of hell, can stop him. The evidence of this is found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 8, uh, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And then from verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this image of a road, a highway for the Lord, which is what Isaiah says and indeed what John quotes, We know where that road leads to, that straight way. We know the destination for us personally and together as a body of believers. It is from exile through the wilderness to glorious deliverance. As you think about what it means to make straight the way of the Lord too, there is great clarity in the gospel message. Salvation is found in Christ alone, not through Christ and other people or Christ plus our own efforts. Think about what we've been looking at in Galatians just recently. You're either for God or you're against him. There isn't any middle ground. So do we wield this knowledge and knock people into shape as we meet them inside or outside church? No, the message of the gospel is clear and it's straightforward, but we ought to share it with all humility. And John is a perfect example of what that looks like. In everything John is saying, in all his actions, he is pointing to Jesus. There is clearly some success in John's ministry. He has drawn the attention of the authorities and he fits in some way the criteria for the Messiah, but he simply, humbly directs people to the one coming after him. Looking at verse 27 of John chapter 1, This illustration is a powerful one. In the context of the day, 
Students would be expected to do whatever a slave would do for their teacher, except take off their shoes. But John says he is unworthy to do even that. So would you be willing to untie the sandals of Jesus? Not literally, but are we willing to serve Jesus? Are we willing to do the work of the gospel that is needed? When I was reading this, I was reminded of the story we see later in John, John chapter 12. And at the start of John 12, we have the account of Mary who poured expensive perfume over Jesus' feet. That was an extravagant demonstration of love. But though we might like to think of ourselves as often being a bit like Mary, in reality we often behave more like Judas in that story. We're concerned about our money, our possessions, our image. We say we love Jesus, but what does that look like in our lives? Does it look like untying the sandals of Jesus? Or pouring perfume over Jesus' feet? Or do we think too highly of ourselves, too highly of our possessions? The King is coming. We don't have time to waste. So, as we close, I want to challenge us to be a voice for the gospel. And in turn, to do the work of the gospel. Point people to the source of water in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And in all of this, draw no attention to ourselves. That's the example we see from John the Baptist here. And we will continue to see time and time again in John's gospel. It is all worth it. A life lived for the gospel is worth it. Even if it costs everything, it is worth it because Jesus is worth it. I'll just pray as we close. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for your words. We thank you that. There are things we can come to, even if we have maybe heard before and be struck by again. Lord, teach us what it means to live a humble life in service of you. And I pray that if there are any here who do not yet know you as their Lord and Savior, may they be struck by the message of the gospel and respond in repentance. But thank you for this time, Lord. Uh, may this word sink deeply into our hearts and go out with us, we pray. Amen.